Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by none other than Doug Polk. You can find him on Twitter at Doug Polk Vids. He joined the show to talk about his recent challenge versus Daniel Negreanu, uh, kind of the future of poker, where poker stands now. Uh, of course, Bitcoin, some NFT talk, uh, content creation, YouTube, all of uh, all of those things of which Doug knows about way better than I do. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can get bonus episodes on patreon.com slash takecast, or you can just leave a rating or review on uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And the show is also being posted on YouTube as well. If you want to watch Doug and I chat, and now let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, everyone, welcoming in Doug Polk uh, to the program. No, no need for introductions. Continuing his tour of of all the podcasts. Very excited um, to talk to Doug. We've had a lot of poker dudes on the show over the last year because um, you know poker is uh, it's booming right now. We're it's it's not you know it's not it's not full scale, but we are in a I think we're in a mini poker boom right now. Do you agree? I would say that the last year for poker has been a really interesting time because. You think about sort of the trajectory of online poker over the course of the last 10 years since Black Friday, we've seen poker sort of decline in overall popularity and then sort of stabilize. I think the last three or four years have been relatively stable until this year. And I I guess it would mainly be COVID. People are bored. They're sick of staying at home and just having nothing to do or maybe their investments are doing well, or they've got some Bitcoin or whatever it is, all of a sudden people are coming out of the woodwork and we're seeing more high stakes online poker being uh, being played than I can kind of remember uh, in a long time. In fact, I think even for Heads Up No Limit, which is the, the form of poker I mainly played, I think right now there is more action going on in Heads Up No Limit than there was back when I was at the top of the ladder in 2014 or, or so. So uh, we're definitely seeing a, a, a lot of online volume and it, it's been a good period of time for poker. Yeah, I had basically not played from like I played in casinos and stuff, you know, here and there, like, you know, a, a sit and go or like a 40 man tournament, maybe once a year or something. But, you know, sitting there in April, it's like I've watched every TV show. I said I was going to watch. I'm already sick of reading. Like, why not log on and play, you know, some games and stuff? And it is I mean, it's not legal everywhere, but there are because poker is kind of getting tacked on to some of the sports betting legislation. And, you know, I think if I if I wanted to be cynical about it, some of the uh, larger corporations realize that poker is a good customer acquisition tool to get people into uh, the sports book. So it is, it is definitely, I think a, a pretty great time, but I, I want to transition now to the challenge. And the, the, the question I most want to get the answer to is, was there one hand that just had you most being like, Daniel, you do not understand heads up, no limit. Is there one hand when you went back to go study, whether the, whether the hand went to showdown or not, that just had you questioning the entire framework of the match? So there was one hand early on that, that Daniel and the thing is when you play this many hands, there's going to be a bunch of hands. A bunch. Mess up, right. Right. Yeah. But there was one that, that I remember um, most vividly. And I say that not fully remembering the exact board, but the concept I remember very vividly, basically we were around 150 big blinds deep. So we each had around 60,000 in front of us. Uh, I opened pocket nines. He three bet. I called the flop came King six, four with a flush draw. He bet. I called the turn was a king. He bet. I called. And there was a nine. 
pretty good river for me all in all. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Pretty decent, decent river. <laughs> so um, the flush completes as well. And he bets pretty big and I jam and he calls and he has uh, sort of a middling king. So, so a middling three of a kind king. I think he had king seven suited in that hand. But his his line there is is not you don't want to be using that size on the river because when you so first off, he loses to every king. Right. So there's not a lot of there's no value there from other kings. And then, of course, he loses to all the flushes. And then once in a while, he's going to lose to full houses. And then if I have a hand that's worse than any of those hands and he bets big on the river, I'm pretty much going to fold. I mean, maybe once in a while I could find a call with a hand like tens or if I had, um, you know, maybe eights, maybe if I had something, um, you know, some kind of double pair block or something like nine, six suited, I might call, but I'd probably be more likely to raise that. So, so there's not really a lot of hands that he even really gets value there. It's his thought process wasn't, Oh, so, you know, this is where three of a kind ranks in terms of all the hands. It was more three of a kind is kind of a good hand, you know? So uh, I, I think that spot early on, he made a mistake. And, and you know, I, I, those types of hands, I think he, he fixed pretty early on. We didn't see too many mistakes like that as the challenge went on, but there were even a few hands sort of in that same subset, uh, even by the end of the challenge. I think on the last day we had a hand where uh, it was the three flush on the flop and he bet, bet, bet. Uh, and the river made it one to a straight. So he had a four and a four made a straight, but there's three clubs out there and he bet big on the river and I jammed and he called and I had a flush. So I think, I think maybe, uh, maybe in some spots, he wasn't really able to determine um, sort of the thresholds for, for bets in terms of what size he wants to use for his value hands. Well, that was kind of his game, right? Like, you know, thinking back to like high stakes poker and all that stuff is like, well, first of all, he loved to play to the cameras and be like, oh, you, I put you on ace king. I call, even though, you know, I can't beat ace king, but that was kind of always his game was calling a lot, which, and again, like I'm, I'm not a super advanced high stakes poker player. Like I I've read a lot of the books I've signed up for some of the courses and stuff, but I'm, I'm like a, a decent player. But one of the things that was most mind blowing to me about learning the solver stuff was like, actually you should call a lot, but it's more like you shouldn't call like that many rivers relative to what people were already doing, but you should be calling a ton on the flop and you should be calling a lot more than people were on the turn. And so I, I wonder if that was one of the things that served Daniel very well back in the day when the games were a lot easier, but it, that like, you know, the stuff you were throwing at him, uh, it ended up being like super exploitable. Well, it's tough to, uh, well, so it's tough, right? Because I think when, when you think back to those high stakes poker episodes where Daniel, you know, put them on the hand that beats him and called, because I also remember <laughs> plenty of that. Those are some of the first yeah. shows I watched coming up in poker. Um, you know, I, I don't know if calling somewhat loose on the river has been a good poker strategy basically ever because most humans just simply don't find enough bluffs. You know, maybe they bluff right. now and then, but the average human is just not bluffing nearly enough to, to make your thin, your thin calls, um, you know, profitable. And, and I had plenty of guys that said to me, I mean, even my, my friend and co-founder of Upstick Poker, Ryan Fee, tweeted, tweeted just the other day, uh, you know, would Doug have made more money just folding the river? And the two options of the poll were yes. And bro, he plays full ring live or something like that. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's definitely people that, that think that their thought that I should be folding more in the river. And it's possible that that would make more money in the long run. But I think that there's this element of heads up that you kind of have to, to think about, which is if you start to fold too often in a lot of these spots, you kind of open the door for people to, 
really push you around and, and attack you. And I think Daniel kind of got attacked on both sides here because he'd have all these people saying, oh, he's running you over. You just got to fold mm-hmm. more or you just got to call more. He's just bluffing you. You can't run over. And then he would call a lot of my bigger bets and I would have it because just the way that the game operates is you should mainly have good hands, right? Uh, obviously, you get to bluff in in a proportion to the size of your bet and um, in a ratio that makes your opponent indifferent between calling and folding. But the reality is I'm bluffing him a lot, but I'm mainly value betting. So it's not it's not an easy. There's, there's no. Yeah, it's just, not an easy question. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Oh, just do this. Obviously, it, it's not something that you can really approach like that. You have to. You have to play correct and go through all your hands and and pick the right candidates to. to you have to play well. You know what I'm saying? It's it, yeah. You got. I mean, no, you just yeah. it's just easy game. You just got to play good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one of the things that there was, uh, like on two plus two and on you know poker Twitter and everything, a lot of people were talking about Daniel's coaches and like I have no idea. I'm sure I have no idea who they are. I assume that he was in conversation and was training with guys who are really good, who have, you know, a much better understanding of solvers and of, um, you know, like decision nodes and everything than he does. But I, I wonder if, well, a couple things first, I wonder, do you think that his coaches, was there anything more they could have done? Like, were they not teaching him the right things or was it just kind of like, you can teach someone to do something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll understand it or execute it properly. And then uh, I guess also would it, would it just not have mattered because even the, the people teaching him were not in, in the game tree as much as you were. From the outside, it's difficult to say the coaches were doing this or that wrong because I wasn't right. the student. I wasn't in the sessions. I don't know what they were teaching him. I'd say that there were some, theoretical fundamentals that his coaches had that were that were quite good he he continuously improved over the course of the challenge he tended to pick out some some different sizes and some different spots that i thought were were strong but then again i also i i guess i questioned more the pedigree of the coaches than their actual uh strategic implementation yeah. because most of the stuff he did was was good or, or in the realm of good my i would be more critical of why would you take people that weren't heads up to limit professionals, right? You know, when I when I put together my team, I, I went out and I found two of the best heads up to limit guys and worked with them. Why would you take guys that are unproven that do not have heads up to limit success and no one in the heads up to limit street knows? It's a pretty good sign when no one in the heads up world of which I was very actively involved in for six months had heard of or knew of his coaches. You know, maybe they'd heard of them, but had no idea about their ability or not played them. Hadn't played that's, them. Yeah. Yeah. That's he didn't pick coaches that had played heads up no limit at, at, at any, at any real volume. Which is, I mean, that, that does strike me as very bizarre. Cause I, I didn't know any of this. I would have assumed that Daniel conferred with, you know, I don't know, whoever the best heads up, no limit, like uh game theory players are. I would assume that it wasn't like his friends or anything. I mean, at any point during the 25,000 hands, did you feel like, Oh, if we if we stretch this out, and the agreement was we had to play a hundred thousand hands, he actually could get to even, or he could run like he could play good enough to run on the positive side of variance. Like, w- like I assume the answer to this question is probably no, but I wonder, you know, at is there any number of hands where he could have learned enough to become profitable playing against you? That to your to your opinion, 
and the the word any is just so broad. I'm sure if I sure. played yeah. five years of, of heads and element against Daniel Lagrande, where he was studying the whole time, by the end we'd probably be, be pretty close. Or yeah, maybe you'd be trading be rake or whatever. Yeah. Well, it was rake free. They did send us our rake back, so that oh, was nice. really good for both of us. Yeah, no, it was nice. Um, but it's hard to say what that exact cutoff point would be. And it also does come down to how well you're able to learn and implement things in real time. It's one thing to be able to look at a solution and learn from a coach and have them tell you how you should be playing. It's completely another to take that and then in the moment actually execute it at a high level. That's where the difficulty of the game is. And, and I think that, that that is the saving grace of this solver generation where you can analyze everything through software to get the solutions to, to complex problems. The saving grace is that you still have to be able to do it. You still have to be able to, in the moment yourself, think about what, how often you should make a play and then do it that amount. You can't just, you can't just memorize the solutions to all these spots. There's just too many cards. There's too many situations. There's single race pots, three red pots, four red pots. Uh, there's, you know, different flop sizes, different turn sizes, different turns and rivers, all the different flops there are in poker, all the different types of spots, flush spots, straight spots, paired board spots, monotone boards. There's just so many different situations that you can run through sims and solutions to, to get ideas of, of how to play those situations. But it's one thing to, to run through those. And it's another thing to say, OK, you have 10 seconds, make your best decision. That That's something that I think humans are going to, you know, have a long way to go no matter how strong computers become. Yeah, I mean, you can you can log on to Upswing. You can take you know the the heads up no limit course. You can watch all the videos. You can analyze everything, and then you can go play one two heads up no limit on your poker side of choice and just not be able to implement it and just lose and just get you know get crushed by people who are implementing you know those things better than you. It's uh, it's uh, no one no one can hold your hand in poker, which I I think is one of the things that is dope about it. Um, okay. Did you have fun doing this challenge? Like would overall your experience of doing this challenge, was it fun or was it, I won the money, I won the challenge. I got, you know, I got wires from Bill Perkins and everyone, but like playing the actual hands, like, do you consider it, was it a fun experience? Overall, I had fun playing this challenge. I think that a lot of it was, a lot of moments weren't, weren't fun. They were grindy. The studying some of the playing I wasn't super thrilled about and it took a lot of effort, energy, and it was hard. It was, a, it was hard to, to put it lightly, I guess, but overall I, I did have fun. The, 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 the community was, was great during this. The memes were amazing. Yeah. The, 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 the nonstop meme creation is just, is just brilliant stuff. Uh, the, the post-game interviews were fun. Some of the some of the content I saw w- was interesting to watch or or just to learn about how other people saw some of the hands that I played. And just getting to see this many people rally around an event in poker, I think that was cool. So I, I did enjoy it. I don't think I, I, w- I wouldn't want to do it again at this point. Right. Having, having had not played for a year, year and a half or however long I'd stepped away, it was it was a fun experience overall for sure. What was, um, what was your schedule like during like weeks where the match was going pretty heavy? I know there were like a couple holidays that came throughout, but like, you know, was it like, you know, work out in the morning study, like, like how much were you, like how much study time were you putting in? And, and more importantly, did the study time diminish as we were getting towards the end of the challenge and you felt like you were in a pretty good spot? It's hard to keep up that same level of motivation when you're on day one and you're up zero dollars versus when you're on the final day and you're up a million or 900 right. or whatever it is. So especially because also you think about your return on the time 
uh, an hour spent studying before the challenge starts will be valuable for the entirety of the challenge. An hour spent when the challenge is on its final day is just for that day. And then when you especially consider, okay, so let's say I, I put in a study session the, the final day of the challenge, what's that really going to affect my win rate? Maybe I, maybe it adds 0.02 big blinds or something. Maybe I learned right. one spot new. How much money does that actually translate to? 50 bucks, a hundred bucks. Yeah. We can't have Doug Polk working out here for a $14 hourly. We just can't have that. Nobody wants that, especially not me. So it was, uh, it was a situation where I I studied a lot more uh, early on, but I I would say overall, I kept a good routine going. It wasn't until those last couple of weeks where it really started to get a a bit hard to study. uh, And and I started to feel a, a burnout where I wanted just to step away. My routine was, I think it was pretty consistent. I usually wake up, do some kind of workout, cardio, whatever it would be organize my life a little bit and then just get into the sim streets you know start running some sims start uh looking at some notes from my coaches start cross-testing some different sizes run some hands from the session before uh try and understand some different parts of of the game tree and just try and build and improve my knowledge there and then usually i'd play some hands versus a trainer as well uh it's pretty cool you can play against training software where it tells you basically what whether your solution was correct or not, or whether your solution was good or not, or sorry, your decision, not solution. So you put in your SIM into the trainer you and it deals you a hand and then you make decisions and then it'll tell you how good those decisions were. And you can do that, you know, for over hundreds or thousands of SIMs. And you can really start to just put in the volume and start to, you know, you're playing versus a, a perfect opponent, basically for the sizes right. of the SIM. That's a really good training ground because then once you're actually in the real game, you're not playing a perfect opponent anymore. You know, you're playing someone that's a human that makes mistakes. So uh, that was that was a sort of my main my main study routine. So speaking of mistakes, one of the things you mentioned on the podcast with Levitan was just that like the the heavy solving of the game, it's it like objectively it's bad for poker objectively it's bad for recreational players and then at the really high level you know 200 400 heads up no limit like the fact that everyone has access to these super advanced simulations everyone i would assume is training maybe not in the same software but in a very similar way it's just objectively bad for for almost everyone and you know, that's one of the things that you've talked about on Twitter and on your, on your YouTube and stuff is like, it's just not that fun. Like poke, like playing poker that way is just not that fun. But I wonder, you know, is there, is there a way back? Like, is there an unsolving of poker to be found? Like, I, I think probably no, but also there is as much as poker is like a popular thing right now, the total number of people playing it has to be so much lower than in, you know, whatever the, the, the golden era, whatever, you know, the, the post money maker years. I mean, and maybe that's wrong, but you would probably actually have a better idea on that. Like concurrent number of users on poker stars in 2008 versus, uh, you know, 2021 or whatever. Well, it's hard to turn back the, the, the wheels of time. So there's sure. not going to yeah. be any unsolving of no limit hold'em. And I, I think if we wanted to try and make the game less solver oriented, I think we would need to, uh, I think we would need to start to play some different game types that aren't quite as popular in, in, in mainstream media. That's difficult because when casual players want to play, they want to play what's in the movies. They want to play what's on ESPN. They want to play this, this form of poker that everyone's familiar with. And then thus solvers will come to help solve those games. So real, realistically, when you're, when you think about how can we play games that are less solved, the answer is that you need new games and if they're new games, they're less popular. And so it's, it, it's really hard to find that blend where 
you kind of get both of those things. I think mixed games are the best example of that, where people will go play and it'll be a cycle of eight different games. Well, now it's very hard to solve because while all eight of those games or 12 of those games could be solved, are, is anyone really going to go home and study 12 games, the solutions, some of the, some of which might not even have programs publicly available? No, it's not realistic to be able to do that. And then I think your more uh, innate poker acumen is going to be tested. But I, the, the thing about the solvers, and I, I agree, and obviously I've said this time and time again, but I do feel that it kills a bit of the soul of the game, right? When, you, when you're going up and sure. you, watch, yeah. you watch it on TV, you're thinking, you know, does he have it or not? You know, what, what, what's he going to do here? And now, yeah, thinking- rounders is a way worse movie. If Mikey McDermott goes home and plugs in the hands into the solver and is like, okay, well I actually was fine that I called here at yeah. 30% of the time or whatever. Yeah. 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 Then, then he can feel good when he goes to the West Chesterfield game, right. Or whatever, whatever the <laughs> right, game, exactly. game was, but it's good and bad. It's good for the people that will work hard. It's good for the development of, uh, watching more perfect poker and i think it's good for the people that can really implement those things in real time and it's bad for the people that are very cunning naturally and some of the recreational players because we're going to continue to see this gap widen between the pros and the recreational players if it continues at this pace yeah i mean i think the the obvious solution is just for people in poker to promote like PLO more to play more to play more like because that's a that's a I mean solvers exist for that game that's a popular game like I I taught my college roommates the rules to PLO and like we played it a little bit but they you know every like everyone wants to play no limit Texas Hold'em but like also limit Hold'em still exists and that's been like an actual solved game for a really long time but I mean it still exist I think people still play Limit Hold'em. I mean, if you go on, if you go on some of these online sites, like you can find Limit Hold'em games. I don't know who plays them, but it it does. And I bet, I bet that there are also like you know smoke filled card rooms in Texas where like eighty seven year old dudes who don't give a shit about COVID are are like masklessly playing Limit Hold'em right now. I'm sure. Look, I I, I bet I'm gonna just fix my camera here, but I, I bet that it still exists. But at what type of volume are we yeah no meaningful here, right? volume because limit hold'em used to actually be a game that uh people played quite frequently back in the day it was a popular game type but now now it's not it's really not it's really not a popular game type there's always going to be there, you can always find a game that's sure is, any of the bigger games there's going to be someone playing it somewhere but realistically if you look at the volume i'd be shocked if it wasn't 75 80 85 percent no limit texas hold'em and i don't think that you people just promoting plo is going to help change that i think that you're going to need to have a fundamental shift in the way that mainstream media and and the common player uh watches poker and until until espn until people want to see the plo main event and they don't and they don't yeah you just you just can't really solve that issue i don't think yeah, I mean, well, PLO is like, uh, it is just an infinitely more complex game. There are like way more outs. There are way more things that you have to understand. Like PLO is, I mean, it, to me, it's it's just so much harder than No Limit Hold'em. Well, the, like, yeah, the, the, just just if you think about combinations, right? So in, in Texas Hold'em, you can have, a, there's roughly 1,300 combos. In PLO, I think it's 220,000 combos of hands. So meaning you could be dealt 220,000 different iterations of four cards. That is insane. Insane. And it drastically changes 
the the amount of knowledge you have to have to play that game well because you can just get dealt so many different hands there's four cards now instead of two it's it, it's radically different so yeah you, you can't even really make starting hand charts for plo like it, it, it's not even really functional you kind of can't we actually have something at upstream called the plo matrix and it's basically there's a solution around that a little bit where you can input your first couple cards. It's like groupings, right? Yeah. It's groupings essentially. Yeah. And then it'll tell you what the optional pre play is. So that's pretty cool software that, that um, we have over at Upsync for people that are interested in PLO. And actually while we're talking about PLO, we just launched the PLO launch pad. It's basically for no limit holding players that want to learn about the game of PLO. This is actually our launch week. So this, this was, this was a perfect, perfect, perfect plug. You, you couldn't have done a better job. There we go. Here. If, uh, there, we'll, we'll link it in the description. Everyone listening to this. If you just go, if you open up your phone, click on the description, I will have that linked in the description. Awesome. Thank you. So basically uh, for players that want to learn PLO, you don't know where to start. There's too many hands. Dylan Wiseman teaches a course. It's roughly nine hours of content to take you from, hey, I like No Limit Hold'em, but I, I don't know anything about PLO, how to play. And then boom, you can play and be winning at a, at a small six level. So, um, but anyway, just to kind of go back to talking about the subject as a whole, the reality is it's going to be tough for the, the popular game types to change. And especially the games that are more complicated, those aren't those aren't really likely to succeed. I think that what's beautiful about No Limit Hold'em is its is its simplicity in that yep. you get you get dealt two cards and you can build whatever you want. And I think I think that how simple that is immediately strikes people, especially newer players. And you just don't get that with okay, you get four cards, but here are the rules. You have to use two. You can't like, bet this amount. Like yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't think that, that translates over as well. There, there would need to be some kind of new game that is beautiful in, in its simplicity in that same fashion. And then you're going to have the same problem. Solvers are going to be a, a big issue in that too. So I don't think this is a problem that we're going to be uh, solving anytime soon. Yeah, no, this is, uh, it's, that was good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something to, to work on and to think about. And I mean, I hope, I hope that PLO does, I mean, I hope that we see more of that on, on ESPN and, uh, like, uh, um, not high stakes poker, but the, the NBC one, they did a PLO night. I remember Brandon Adams was on that one. Like those were, those were fun episodes. I mean, it would take a more, it would take a more coordinated effort though. Um, so the last thing about poker that I want to ask before we get into some other interesting stuff is like, where are you at with poker now? Challenge is done. You were like, you know, it was it was fun to get it done, but I, I don't have any commitments now. Like, is it kind of like I'll roll up to Vegas and play the main event? I'll play cash games when I feel like it. I'll play online when I feel like it. Or are you on a detox from poker now? I'm tired of being the guy that says what he will or won't do and then not fair. Doing, <laughs> yeah, doing yeah. It. yeah. So I, I'm trying to be a little more careful with what I say. I, I can't see myself playing poker because I don't enjoy playing. It's just too much of a grind and it's too solved and I just don't really enjoy it. Now, maybe in some specific instances, if I wanted to hang out with some people and we're playing this sort of a fun game or something, I, I could jump in, but I, I'm not, I do not see myself playing the main. I do not see myself playing online. I don't see myself getting back in there. I think I'm going to be looking forward to trying to do other things in my life. And uh, I think poker has been a, a fantastic journey. I love the game and what it has given me in my life. I'm thankful for that, but sometimes there reaches a point where you just can't, you just can't keep doing the thing you've done for years. It just, it just starts to become too monotonous. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move into the good stuff, Bitcoin and other associated um, products. First off, 
just give me the give me the Doug Polk mission statement on this absurd bull run, right? We got we got fucking Elon buying 1.5 billion. Michael Saylor's company has a bunch. Uh, every day, some new bank or credit card is like, oh yeah, we'll process your Bitcoin payments. Like, what? Just what do you make of all of this? Like, just all of the the corporatization of Bitcoin, really? Well, I want to take a step back and I want to just talk about Bitcoin as a whole because I, I did. I did some podcasts back in the day, 2014 or so, where I mm-hmm. went on and I said, look, guys, Bitcoin's going to win. And I've I've been fortunate enough to be involved in Bitcoins from, from a pretty early period of time. And I've just been, you know, preaching from the pulpit on Bitcoin is going to win for just years since Bitcoin was you know, low three figures. That's where right. I, I've been. I've been on the record time and time again saying that. And I said that during the last bull run. And I said it before the last bull run. I said it after the last bull run. And I'm just going to say it again today. And this is the bottom line. In, in the long run, Bitcoin is going to win because it makes more sense to have money that operates by rule of law and rule of math than by people that can manipulate it and decide what's happening with it. That just fundamentally fundamentally makes more sense to me. And the fact that you personally own it and no one can take it from you and you can send it directly to other people. It just the the ideas of Bitcoin are too strong for it to not succeed in the long run. And I have a little bit less of micro view of, of views in, in the short term windows of, oh, who's in today? Who's yeah, in tomorrow? Yeah. Uh, because it's so hard to predict that stuff, right? Obviously, this has been a phenomenal run up and uh, it's been it's been a pleasure to to to, to see it go this direction. But I don't know what sort of the, the, the driving force behind which companies are getting involved or not getting involved or whatever. There's no real way for you to tell that thing, uh, to, t- to tell who's getting involved. So I guess my overall, my overall position would be if you have money to invest in Bitcoin or you want to allocate your portfolio in a way that gets exposure to Bitcoin, I think you definitely should. And you should be doing that sort of independent of whether it's hot or not right now. Because yeah, frankly, yeah. We're, we're at almost 50K or we're at 45K or whatever it is at this moment is swinging around. It could be at a hundred in in half a year. It could be at twenty five. There's just you There's just no don't way to know. know. Yeah. And so so if you're sitting, you're on the fence. Oh well, it's just too expensive now. It, it, it's silly to think like that because if you think like that, you're not going to get exposure to Bitcoin. And on average, every day its value will increase. So you just think about it when when you're able to to invest in it. I think that you know, and you can do so um, responsibly. I think that you should. I think long run it will continue to win. But it's just going to be really hard to time the market and best of luck uh, on making those choices. So do you have any thoughts on, I mean, what is kind of universally, I think, acknowledged is like we are in an equities bubble of some sort right now. Like 22% of all of the U.S. dollars that have ever been printed were printed in 2020 and like, you know, record highs literally every single day in the stock market. We, I mean, just all sorts of things to invest in online right now just like literally every day i log into twitter and one of my friends is like purchase some new thing that is supposed to appreciate in value and i i guess one of the things people ask me the most about bitcoin is like yeah well what happens because it theoretically it is supposed to protect against some of the volatilities in the market in that it is more sound and that it is it stores value but you know then the other criticism is well bitcoin crashed the same on you know march 14th the same day that the stock market fell like i i just do you have any thoughts on its tie to like the equities overall 
So let's two different subjects here that I think are both good uh, conversational topics. The the first one is talking about uh, the the currency of equities. Are we in a bubble? All, all that type of conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to answer that. And I think of it like this. I remember seriously, seriously, eight, nine years ago, people saying, oh, it's been too good for too long. This is going to have to end soon. Right. I remember people saying, that, oh, I'm not going to invest in the, the market here or in, in real estate. The last three, four years have been crazy. And then I heard it five years ago. And then I heard it three years ago. And then I heard it two years ago. And then here we are today. Oh, it's still a bubble. The reality of when you have market downturns, it's extremely hard to predict when they're going to happen. And so trying to take a conservative approach just because we're in some kind of bubble, I think is an incorrect strategy that I hear some people taking. I think it's good to diversify across many different asset classes so that if there is a retraction in the market, you're not going to get just hammered in individual specific asset classes. But realistically, you're going to want to have exposure across the board. And I also think we're in sort of an unprecedented time in the history of the world where despite the fact that we're printing just gobs of U.S. dollars, the world needs U.S. dollars and there's high demand for U.S. dollars. So we've kind of decided, oh, the game is U.S. dollars. That's the only game in town. Everyone plays it and we're printing more and then every country just has to kind of deal with it what are they going to do not use us dollars a lot of things are i mean you look at oil it's it's you need to buy us dollars just to be able to trade in the oil markets so i mean i i don't think that we are necessarily in an equities bubble per se at the moment i do think we are looking at a a spot where we're going to start to see some inflation of the us dollar and i wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised if some of the run-up in the value of these equities is because of the fact we're printing so many dollars that it's easier for these items to appreciate, uh, particularly when you consider some of the uh, potential long-run inflation issues. So putting that aside, um, talking about, um, what was your question on Bitcoin specifically? I I forgot. Well, just like, so I think the idea for a lot of people who truly believe in Bitcoin, like the the true believers, the crypto punks, is that theoretically it shouldn't actually be tied to the prices of other equity you should see you should not see a correlation between the S&P 500 and the value of bitcoin but the reality is you do now now bitcoin has grown separately and like grown in a more advanced sense like if you compare tesla stock or whatever to bitcoin you'll see it grow and appreciate more but when there have been slight tumbles in like the globe, uh, you know, in in global stock market equities and stuff, you've also seen Bitcoin fall. Um, and so, so I guess if the first part of your answer to that question is, you know, we we actually don't know how much of an equity bubble we're in, but just e- even if the answer to that question is we are, what do you think Bitcoin's relation is to like kind of the global equities market? Bitcoin is highly speculative at this point. Yeah, it, it, it's way too early, and I think that when people compare it to gold. It's only a reasonable comparison in that it is a uh, store of value. Um, I think past that, it's really very different in a lot of ways. And you think about gold, gold has been valuable for thousands of years. And that's and, and the Lindy effect is one of the primary reasons that gold will continue to be valuable. For gold sure. was valuable yesterday. It's going to be valuable tomorrow. Bitcoin has been valuable for you know, seven years, depending on how you want to look at it, maybe 10, you know, what do you want to consider valuable? So I think Bitcoin is is far more speculative and it also um, serves a lot of different purposes than, than gold does. It it allows you to actually trade with people. You can send it online. You don't have to be near them. There doesn't need to be any kind of intermediary. You don't have to prove that Bitcoin is real. The network confirms it. Whereas with gold, you have to make sure it's not fake gold. There's a bunch of issues with gold and, uh, and Bitcoin in terms of their comparison that I think make these asset classes quite different. 
when we saw Bitcoin crash, when the market crashed uh, in early 2020, sort of a reaction to some of the, some of the supply chain problems from COVID. Yeah, we saw a, a very a very uh, synchronized dip on both Bitcoin and the market where people did wonder, okay, are these things connected or not? And I, I do think they're connected. I think there's going to be some con- some connectivity between those two uh, those two asset classes. Will it always be like that? I don't think that's necessarily clear. And it and not all crashes will be the same exactly. I think with that one specifically, a lot of people were very worried about what's going to happen to just society in general. Uh, right. What would what would the fallout be from COVID? So, I think just because we saw them tank together in the past doesn't necessarily indicate that it'll be in the future. But my gut instinct is that anytime that the market takes a big hit, speculative asset classes will take big hits as well. And I and I do see Bitcoin as being part of that grouping. Yeah, which I think is the you know the rational and the level headed take. So I wanna I wanna get uh, Doug Polk's official opinion on some of these other speculative assets because this is uh, I mean this is the shit that dominates my day. So the first first thing I I'm actually super curious of have you started getting into DeFi stuff? Like, is, are you, are you yield farming Uniswap and sushi tokens? Like, or, or just like, what do you view the utility of some of these DeFi projects as? I'm not up to date on DeFi at all. Some of my friends have kind of tried to explain it to me. It's I crazy. Dude. I didn't super understand it. And I was in the middle of trying to figure out if Ted Nine suited was a, a three bet. <laughs> I, I, I'm not... I'm not up there and all that stuff. In fact, I actively tried to not learn any of this stuff in the last six months because I didn't want to cloud my head with thinking about things that were unrelated to what I was doing. So I'm not up to date on DeFi at all. Uh, I, I, I'm not really up there on NFTs. I, I'm not I'm not in the mix on any of the of the newer stuff. So I'm not a good uh, I'm not a good source of information for that. Okay. Uh, sports cards, sports cards as an alternative investment. This is, uh, which is getting mega pumped by like a couple whales. Like there are guys who are at the very top of the game. You know, Gary V obviously is the main one, but there are, there are lots of guys who are, you know, just flooding money into these Jordan rookie cards and LeBron rookie cards and things like that. I, I kind of buy it because, they're super scarce and they're, you know, they, these are legitimately non-replaceable things. And like 80 years from now, I'm pretty certain people are still going to know who Michael Jordan and LeBron James are. Very likely that's going to be true, but do you really care if people want these cards in 80 years? (laughs) Is that really important to you? I mean, maybe like, maybe like 40 years, maybe like that's more reasonable. Yeah. Like I just bought um, like fractional investing. I just bought 10 shares of a, Wayne Gretzky rookie cards like PSA 10. I think it's literally the only like high grade one that exists out there. And like, I'm pretty certain that that will gain more money for me than like a Vanguard ETF will. I'm like pretty sure about that. But maybe I mean, not. I don't it, know. It, 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 that's, that's a hard market to gauge in, in today's environment. That's definitely possible. And when you look at these, these trading cards, what they really are are art right and what you're really buying is the authenticity of the art really buying that this was one of the only um rookie cards or one of the only cards that came out um so you're buying authenticity and look it's not that it's no less crazy than buying a painting for a million dollars or buying some painting from some specific artist from 400 years ago for 50 million dollars i don't see is this really that different in any capacity i don't think so uh, I, I think it's honestly quite similar to what's happening with top shots online. Is that, is that different? Is it different to buy, uh, to buy a specific, uh, player's moment 
in digital form versus buying a playing card versus buying a painting. These are all sort of the same idea, which is you're buying into the authenticity of a piece of art. And I think that uh, I, I think that that absolutely these things are, are real and have value and it can appreciate and will these things take a hit in a downturn i'm gonna say oh, yes yeah, they're gonna I'm get gonna, wrecked uh, well there it, there'll be no liquidity like if if we see a, a five thousand you know a ten percent drop in the stock market you you won't be able to sell your rookie card to anyone like literally it would be like um the the long-term capital management fund failure like you 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 could you could search buyers low and high and you will find no one so then all of a sudden the vanguard etf's looking pretty good right looking pretty good <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's why we tout uh, a diversified you know, portfolio. I've I, I, I just got to say I, I've been in the Vanguard ETF streets for for a decade or, or more or whatever. Yeah, and, and and look like it's not the it's not the most uh, savvy part of my portfolio. Well, you can't not, you can't tweet about most, it and dunk on it, people. Yeah, it's not it's not you know it's not going to turn into a meme on on Wall Street bets. It's not it's not going to be uh, talked about you know, in this way, but guess what? It made money constantly over that time and it balanced yeah. out the stuff that I'm doing. So I think, I think it's good to, to take some shots and some things that you think have, uh, have some upside, particularly in industries that you're more familiar with. I think that having insight into some of these areas gives you an opportunity to invest in a way that other people can't, and you shouldn't be afraid to, to bet on what you think is going to happen. Uh, I think that's your right as a, uh, as a person of the world is to try and uh, place bets on, on where you see value headed in the future and, and to try and make money from that. But I also think that the bottom line is I have some investments that I think could go up big and have made me a lot of money, but uh, I, I'm, unless something truly catastrophic happened, I would never become poor because there's no, there's nothing that could crash or, or get hit that would, would hurt me in a way that could actually, could actually lose me a lot of my money, you know? So it kind of depends, I guess, on, on where you're at. I think if you're in your early 20s and, you know, you have uh, have some liquid and you're in a position to be able to gamble, I think firing on what you think. Yeah, will, this is this totally is literally. Yeah, yeah, you're just like summarizing my life. Like I don't yeah. have kids. I don't have a mortgage. Like I'm just firing at stuff to try and bank. Sure. I think that's totally fine. I think as you get older, obviously your strategy needs to change and it needs to make sense. And it also kind of matters. What are your goals for me? My goal has never been, oh, I want to have the most money. I want to have tons of money. I want to be super rich. My goal is I want to have a really nice life and I want to not have to work and be poor. And so for me, my investment strategy is going to be a lot different than somebody that's just trying to put their foot in the gas and go massive and try and buy an extra share of Wayne Gretzky's rookie card or whatever the hell the kids are investing <laughs> in these days. Dude, I mean, so like uh, what the other one was um, – uh a stegosaurus or triceratops skull, like fractionally investing in a, in a uh, Peter Jennings guy. I don't know if you know him. Uh, he got me on, yeah. on that one. Yeah, that was, uh, cool. that was another good fractional investment. Nice. Um, okay. I do real quick. I want to circle back to top shots real quick. Cause this, this is the thing that is like most fascinating to me is non-fungible tokens. And I, I think that society pre COVID was heading towards like a way like living so much more of your life in a digital space anyway. And COVID really accelerated that for lots of people who maybe would have never gotten there or didn't start to think about things that way. Um, and there is the, I've touted it on this show before, but there's this great article on metaverse.net um, into the void is, is what it's called that talks a lot about the metaverse, but like top shots was the first thing for me 
where I was like, not only is this really cool to me, like I love the NBA, I love crypto, I love like all of these things were directly applied to my niche anyway. But like also I see how this ties to the real world of the NBA and these digital things can appreciate based on things that happen in the real world and things, you know, that people physically do. Uh, so I, I just kind of wanted to get your, your broad strokes takes on, on NFTs and, and more specifically top shots. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So basically I think that when we look at uh, this class of, uh, of uh, whether you want, whatever you want to call them, I guess when you, look, when you look at NFTs and just the idea of what they represent, and I, I kind of said this a little bit before, but what you're really purchasing is authenticity and you're really purchasing that this is a, a, a real authentic item that represents value. And so I, I'm not surprised in the digital age that we're seeing more and more of these things kind of spring up. I think if we looked at sort of the video game world, you see skins of different uh, different guns and, and characters and whatever else. That they sell for real US dollars. And they sell for real US dollars. And they're, they're not a physical item, they're a digital item, right? You can look at it, but you own it. And I, so I think we're seeing sort of the merging of maybe what most people in the past would have thought is, is a useless or valueless thing with, with real value, even though it's a digital item. And so I'm not surprised to see this area grow because one problem with a lot of artwork is that it, there's no way to actually verify if it's if it's uh, if truly it's real from the source that you want it to be from. Whereas these you can they can be verified digitally uh, that they are in fact real authentic items, and I think that that has value. And 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 when I first heard about this type of thing, in fact, uh, there was a. a Basically, I was uh, working with a few guys to kind of create something similar to this. Um, it hasn't launched off the ground yet, so there's really no point in plugging it. But the, the, the point is, uh, I started to hear about this concept and this idea of digital, digitally verified artwork. And I started to think, you know, maybe this, this actually does make sense. Is this that different than, than buying a trading card or buying a piece of art? Or no, I, don't, I think the answer is no. I think it's just something of value and, and what represents it. I mean, I, I kind of said this, this take before, but um, I, have, I have a similar take here as compared to baseball trading cards or basketball cards or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, I'm pretty bullish on it now that the company Top Shots is um, facing a lot of scaling issues, which like anyone who runs a business online knows when you get lots of unexpected traffic. So lots of people are, you know, not not that happy with the way the company is being run. But I also think that's stuff that will be forgiven in a year's time. So I'm not, I'm not sweating it that much right now. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to touch on here is uh, your your old job, which was uh, a YouTube content creator. Because I think this stuff is largely fascinating, but also does tie into the NFT conversation somewhat because everything is becoming so micro and so niche. Like where like whole podcasts exist, where a person's whole ass job is to do a podcast about a TV show that they've never worked on, you know? And like their YouTube, like your YouTube channels actually are a great example. Like the Doug Polk podcast, the Doug Polk crypto, Doug Polk poker. And it's all, it's all very niche and it's all related to like hyper specific search terms and everything. And I, I actually noticed this during the Super Bowl, or I had the thought like, all of these crazy streaming services exist too. Like what I have in our notes is that Paramount fucking plus exists. Like, what is that? What does Paramount even own? I don't know, but it exists and it's going to be valued at some crazy millions of dollars valuation. 
but what I the the question that I have for you is like there should be even more money I think in like mega niche content creation where like you are the only provider of like Joey Ingram for example like Joey probably did not make that much money covering the challenge but like i watched a bunch of those streams i assume he had probably the most watch stream from that challenge and i would imagine that if there was a more seamless way to transact there he could have made a ton of money and like so i i guess maybe the umbrella question i'm asking is like what are doug polk's thoughts on kind of the future of content you know creation and and purchasing for people there's always going to be this trade-off when you get into super niche content where if it's extremely niche, there's not a lot of people, but sometimes those people are, are very valuable. And so there's going to be this trade-off that you have. You can only go so far down that road before you just don't, you simply just do not have enough audience. Enough so audience. That, there's, there's just, there's a middle ground there that's uh, very interesting. And when I look at poker, poker is kind of fascinating in this regard. The poker audience online isn't that big compared to a lot of industries, but they the spend. average the average person is very very valuable. And one thing that I found from uh, selling poker training products is that people view it as business to business, right? Because when they're purchasing a training course in poker, they're going to make money from that if they can actually implement the concepts that they learn. And so they're viewing it as a business expense because it is a business expense. Oh, if I improve my business of playing poker, my business makes more money. So the average viewer in a poker stream is very valuable and you also kind of see that uh i think from the online poker sites battle with uh customer acquisition costs you know back in the day before black friday stars full to these companies i think uh average acquisition or average lifetime customer value for someone that would come to one of these sites would be roughly 150 dollars or so so you could spend 145 why not and then and then people try to realize oh you can spend 155 because if you lose money then other people that want to play will see your site and then you might get some conversions there so you can actually spend more than your your lcv if it helps generate future player player deposits as well from other people so we saw this sort of arms race where people were spending to try and get these people involved it's so hard to say where where content is headed i, I do think it's hilarious you bring up the example of someone their job is they have a podcast and a show that they're not a part of it's you know what, what the fuck is that right <laughs> what insight do you really have here but but i think I think that people uh, get to decide what they enjoy and people uh, sometimes you just enjoy hearing someone talk about a subject you're really interested in, right? Sometimes you like to just learn about things and, and, and hear some different opinions or how other people are perceiving the same event that you're seeing. So I think that the future of content, we'll see more and more uh, sort of smaller versions that are more targeted in a different ad, a different people with, with football, they did that one game where it was Nickelodeon football and they had the slime yep. zone and all this silly stuff going on. Right. But I think some people probably enjoy that. Maybe some kids watch football. They wouldn't have watched football. Otherwise, I think that we're going to see more and more of that stuff uh, start to happen and head and it's going to head in that direction uh, overall. Yeah. And I also think that crypto plays a pretty big role in that stuff because it uh, allows like way more frictionless microtransactions. So like I use this web browser um, called Brave, which, yeah. yeah, which uses basic attention token. And now I've never done this, but it does offer you the ability to basically tip like 0.3 cents, like every time you watch a content creators thing, if they're like verified. And, and I think like, it's, it's just like a network effects thing where like not enough people have signed up for it. Not enough people have, you know, an F wallet attached to their browser and stuff, but this, like this ties back into the metaverse thing where like there, there is certainly a future 
if things play out a certain way, we're like 20 years from now, like everyone just has an Ethereum wallet and that Ethereum wallet is on their phone and it's on their web browser. And like, it's, it's like two clicks. And, uh, you know, in this world, gas fees are not like $57 for like an $8 transaction as well. Um, but I, I, I think that, I think that, um, those two things definitely tie together. And I also think that, um, like some sort of decentralized YouTube also uh, probably plays a role in there. And I have no idea how it would be, but like basically totally on demand content for like whatever it is exactly that you're looking for. And I, I don't even think the framework for that exists yet. Well, it's tough with decentralized YouTube because when you start to get into these problems, like what if people are posting content you don't want to have on the platform because it, it, right. it shouldn't be posted. You, you end up in a lot of um, tough situations, I think there. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think these things can, can have merit and, and will probably grow. Brave has been around for, for a while now. I mean, I don't know when it first came out four or five years ago, I think. So that's not anything new. I think the idea there is fine. But one one thing to think about here, one, I guess one final note is not everything doesn't have to be decentralized. I know that sometimes you said <laughs> I know that's such a crypto good, fucking but thing. But you don't have yeah. to decentralize everything. Some things are actually better centralized. And I'll give you one good example. When at the height of the 2017 crypto boom, everyone was selling me a poker site that they were launching. Decentralized poker. And I, I always asked them, why is this good? And I never really got a good answer to that question. And why does this need to be decentralized? Oh, so you get paid. 90 whatever percent, 99% probably of poker payouts have been successfully paid. In fact, if you look, look at legitimate top five, top 10 sites, very few in the history of poker have not paid out. Very few. I mean, it's possible, but it's extremely unlikely. Oh, well, it's provably fair. These sites have to get licenses. You think they're going to risk their license to try and rig your pocket kings versus whatever? No, they're not going to do that. What does your site actually solve other than it makes it really expensive to play microstakes? How are you going to have one cent, two cent when the ETH gas fees are at whatever yeah. to be able to play this? It doesn't <laughs> make they're sense. they're insane. So the, the point is you don't decentralize just to decentralize. You decentralize because it creates value in a way that these centralized versions cannot create. Yeah. All right, man. Beautiful show. Uh, tell people why they should sign up for Upswing, how they can benefit the most from their membership, all, all yeah. that good stuff. If you want to learn more about poker, head over to upswingpoker.com. I actually put up one of my recent sessions versus Negranu. It's the it's the first session that we played. I talked to a bunch of the spots. Uh, totally free. You just have to sign up with your email. Uh, we also have a bunch of courses, uh, some more advanced stuff too, if you're interested in that. So head over to Upswing Poker. And if you want to follow me, you can do so over on Twitter at Doug Polk Vids. Usually I'm tweeting what I'm up to, so that's the best place to follow. Yep. All right, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And we will be back next week uh, with Peter Overzet and Patrick Laird. The man's. The man's. <laughs>